Acts 27 Part 2 from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter on. When was the last time you encountered a crisis in your life? When was the last time that happened? You ever lose your kid at the mall? That ever happened before? A uh, long time ago, it happened to my wife and I, not, not for long, it wasn't even that serious, but I, I mean, just the things that you start thinking about when you think you lost your kid at the mall, I mean, it is like everything is about that moment and you start thinking of the worst case scenarios when that happens. But when was the last time you encountered a crisis? Maybe as this skit kind of played out that you can really um, identify with what's happened up here. Uh, maybe it's not you that experienced the violence, but maybe it was a parent growing up, you saw that in your own home. And still today, it, it has a damaging effect in how you see life and how you trust people in your life. Maybe that's a crisis. But when was the last time you encountered one? When was the last time you encountered that crisis? Are you struggling today with your job that you're afraid that you might lose your job? That's a crisis, right? That's a crisis that a lot of us go through sometimes. Are you struggling maybe because you did lose your job and you're unemployed right now? <laughs> Are you struggling right now because right now uh, your job is just merely to help you pay your bills? It isn't something that you really dreamed of. It isn't something that you'd hope to do. It doesn't bring you joy and you're kind of in this crisis because every time you go to work, it's like you're a robot and you're not meant to be a robot. In fact, your vocation is something in which God is supposed to show you something deeper and, and, and show something that's even more purposeful for your life. Maybe that's a challenge for you. Fortunately, maybe some of you have experienced betrayal in relationships. Maybe your significant other cheated on you and as a result, this caused such a deep sense of crisis that's happened and that occurs in your life today and it hurts you even thinking about that and your ability to trust other people is just almost non-existent today because of it. It's overwhelming for you, right? Or maybe for some of you right now, your marriage is on the rocks and it's on that verge of divorce and, and it's crisis mode right now for you and you're struggling. Maybe right now you're going through a divorce and that's even hard too. When was the last time you experienced a crisis? Maybe for some it wasn't even maybe that serious, but it was a crisis enough for you. Listen, I don't want you to minimize because I know I, I shared some extreme crisis, but some of us, we can encounter a certain crisis that really messes us up a little bit, right? And, uh, and all crises are crisis. I just want you to know that because it sort of has an effect within you where it causes a little bit of trauma that kind of impacts how you're going to live your life for the future. So my last crisis that I've ever encountered has been this past June, early June. About five, six of us decided to bike ride from New York to Boston. And uh, we did it to raise money for Zamele, which is an organization that we love very, very much. We did it last year, just Mike, myself, and Neil, one of our elders here in the church. And when we went towards the end of June, it was like beautiful weather, 90, 95 degrees, full humidity. I love riding in those conditions. Not a hint of rain. But this year, we had significant rain on the first day of the trip and the very last day of the trip. Can we just show what the rain kind of looked like on the first day when we went out riding? Mike, Pastor Mike took a picture. Look at this. No way. Can you even see this? Right on Grant! All right, man, that's enough. That's enough trauma. I can't remember that moment. 
But it's crazy. I mean, we were riding in those conditions on Monday, and uh, and it was bad. And it was bad enough because uh, you know the way it was raining, it was, and it just got worse and worse as the evening went on. It just got worse. You, you would think maybe it would stop after a while, but it just intensified and it got worse. But the first, it wasn't so bad because it wasn't as cold. It was like in the 70s, so it was fine to kind of ride in that. Not that it was fine, but it was still bearable. But the last day, when we rode from Providence, Rhode Island, it's colder up there, to Boston, it was freezing. What was it like? Remember Wednesday, this past Wednesday? Remember how hard it rained? In fact, on our block, a tree fell, right? That's because the wind and the rain was just torrential. It was cold. How cold was it on Wednesday? 55 degrees. We went to Providence for Island. We looked at the weather. It said that it was going to rain around 8.30 a.m. And so we said, you know what? Let's get out at 6 a.m. to beat it, maybe get two hours of clean, dry riding. So that's what, that was our plan. We got up in the morning. I could already hear it raining outside of our hotel room. I'm thinking, no. We get dressed up. We go out, and it's freezing, 55 degrees. With the wind chill, it's about 45 because you're riding. And it just got more intense, more intense. The wind was just blowing. Somebody got a flat. Somebody fell down. I mean, it was just horrible. And there was a moment where I was like, I got to call Angie to pick us up in the church van because this is awful. This is wrong. Pastor Mike said, no, we're going to finish this no matter what. And we did. We got to Facebook headquarters in Boston. One of our writers was an employee at Facebook. And we had showers there. We were able to shower, eat the free food at Facebook. It was just really good. But I'm going to tell you something. After that day, I didn't touch my bike for almost two months. It was trauma. I want to touch my bike. In fact, like after like a month or two later, the guys all just kind of emailed everyone and said, hey, let's do the Grand Fondo in May. Like, let's do the Grand Fondo in May. And everyone signed up, and I did not. And somebody texted me, and he goes, is it because of the finances? Do you want me to do that? You want me to pay? I'll pay for it. I said, no. It's because I'm so scared it's going to rain again. <laughs> and it's in May. You know how cold it is in New Jersey in early May? I ain't getting on that bike early May. And here's what I've noticed. When we go through crisis, it's so much about us, isn't it? It's so hard for us to think outside of ourselves when we're going through crisis because sort of the self-preservation mode just kind of kicks in. And when that happens, we sort of live in this little bubble, this self-centered world, and everything sort of revolves around us. And then we're incapable then of really recognizing that there's a God in heaven that actually loves you and wants you to operate under his divine grace, mercy, and care. And it prevents us from doing that. And so as we continue in this series in Acts 27, I want you to know that as we look at the story again, the saga continues. Paul's on this boat. They've been, they've been at sea for 14 days, and it's bad. I mean, they're, they're riding during hurricane season. You should never go cruising into the Caribbean islands during hurricane season. Not a good idea. But back then, they decided to go for 14 days. They are, they are on the sea, and it's bad. And in this time, we're going to see how Paul is going to teach us how we can grow and, or how we can deal with crisis situations where it's not all about us. And he teaches us a secret, and here's the secret. I'm going to tell you right now. The secret to dealing with our crisis in a healthy way so that we can grow and, and experience all that I think God has for us, even in the moments of those crises, is to make Jesus the center of our life. That's the secret, is to make Jesus the very center of our lives. But how do we do that? That is so hard to do. 
to make Jesus, because right now some of you are going through crisis at work, some of you are going through crisis in your relationships, some of you are going through crisis because of loss. How do you make sense of all that? How do you make Jesus the center of all of that when you feel like you're going to die? Paul teaches us how we can do that. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 27. I'm gonna look at 27 and 44, and I just want you to know we're almost done. We have one more chapter, chapter 28, and then this thing is over. We've been literally on this 18-month journey, and it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Here's what it says here. Last week, Doug took us to the point where they did get on the ship, and it was bad, but now they're on the 14th night here. Verse 27, on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailor let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the boat. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You have eaten anything, you you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food, you need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time united the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The boat stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the Centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so God, we come to you today. We ask that you would help us to go deep into this text. Teach us, God, how you can be the center of our lives. How you can be at a place, God, where you are more important than even our own life. Oh God, that is almost impossible to do today, even with Christians in the church. Teach us how we can get to a place where you become more important than even our own well-being, our own life. I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. It is in your name that we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. All right, so how do we get to this place? How do you get to this place where you begin to value Jesus more then you actually do your own life. I know that sounds kind of weird, right? But how do we do that? Because I hope that you can get to a place. You ever, you ever get to that place where you love somebody more than yourself? You ever fall in love? You ever, like, the first time you really fell in love? Like, it didn't matter. Like, you didn't have to sleep. You would drive wherever it took to meet, your, meet that person you fell in love with. I mean, they were more important than even yourself, your own life. You guys, I think, all can identify what it's like to be in love with someone where that love was so deep that that, that it was more important for you to love that person even more than your own life. 
And so how do we do that with Jesus? Because that's really hard. Because a lot of us, we kind of like take Jesus out of the bookshelf in the morning. We put him in our pocket. We come to church. We open him up on the Bible. Then we put it back in our pocket or in our apps. And then that's it. Right? Jesus just becomes this convenient thing that we kind of take on a weekly basis and we connect with. But then we go home and he's really not there. How, how does Jesus become the center of our life? And, and let's put it even harder. How does he become the center of our life when the what, you know, when the thing hits the fan? Right? When everything just starts falling apart in your life, how do we do it? Paul teaches us four key things that we can begin to do if we want to make him the center of our lives. Here's the first one. We have to be willing to speak his truth. You have to be willing to speak his truth, not to yourself, but to other people. You get me on that? Here, check it out. Verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down in the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Paul had a truth that needed to be told. But it's amazing because when you think about Paul, what's his title on the ship? He's a prisoner. He's a prisoner, and yet he knows that there's a truth that needs to be told. He doesn't sort of talk himself out of it and say, you know what, I shouldn't even bring this up because I tried to bring something up before to the centurion. He didn't listen to me. We still got on the boat and we set sail. I told him they shouldn't do this, but they did. He didn't even let that discourage him. He knew that if these sailors left the boat, that the centurion, the soldiers, everyone would die except for Paul. Paul was going to get to Rome no matter what. Why? Because the angel and God had told him he was going to go there. And so Paul goes and he speaks the truth to the centurion who is the captain and tells him that if they leave, guess what's going to happen? You all die. And what do they do? They cut the lifeboat so that everyone can stay on the boat. Here's the thing. If you want to make Jesus the center of your life, you've got to be willing to speak the truth. And for a lot of you, I think one of the best ways in how you can do that is start to even uh, ask yourself, what truth are you holding from other people that are in your life today that you might be afraid to share with because you're so afraid of what the outcome might look like? A lot of us, we sort of hold back the truth because we don't want to. Particularly what we find here with Paul is that what he does here is that he's sharing truth, meaning uh, he's exposing some evil that's happening. Right? That they're doing something completely wrong that they shouldn't be doing. And then he shares that with the proper authority. And so I want you to know that one of the things that God would encourage you to speak truth on is when you see somebody doing something, you know it's going to hurt them and hurt other people. Why would you keep that to yourself? Why would you keep that? Do you really love that person if you, if you just keep the truth of who God is, the truth of what will happen to them if they go that way? Have you ever kind of held the truth? You were so afraid of what might happen because your desire to want to be liked by that person was greater than you speaking the truth. Here, here's the thing. We live in a culture today where sharing the truth isn't really in vogue. I know we like to do it in social media, but that's not the real truth. Some of us, we hide behind social media. I'm talking about sitting down with somebody, man to man, woman to woman, or woman to man, whatever you want to do, sit down and speak truth into their lives. You know why we don't do that? Because we live in a culture where we're so obsessed about being liked. 
You want to be liked so much. You want to have all these likes on your Facebook. You want to have all these likes on your Instagram. You want to be liked. We live in a like-obsessed culture, and when you live your life wanting to be liked, guess what? You're going to be very empty inside. God didn't put you on this planet so that you can be liked. He puts you on this planet so you can be loved. And in order to be loved, in order to experience the love of God, you've got to be willing to speak the truth the way Paul did. Paul didn't have to speak the truth, but he did. And you and I have to as well. Jesus is the center of our life. When we get to the place where we say, I know that what God has taught me through the word of God, I know what God has taught me is truly the right thing to do. And if you see somebody going a downward path that you would love them enough to speak truth with humility. If you don't have humility, you shouldn't do it. Now some of you, you don't have problems speaking the truth. But the problem with your truth, it only comes out when you're pissed. It only comes out when you're angry at somebody. That's not the kind of truth that God wants you to share. Your truth must be deeply connected in humility. You see, it's so hard for us to make Jesus the center of our lives. And I think what we need to do is we need to do what the soldiers did to these sailors. We gotta cut the lifeboats in our lives and be willing to stay on the boat so that we can make Jesus the center of our lives. What lifeboats do you hold on to today that you won't let go of that's preventing you from making Jesus the center of your life? What are those lifeboats today? You know what you're gonna have to do today is you're gonna have to cut it and let it go, let it drift to sea so that you can stay on this boat with Jesus and you can make him the center of your life. It's so hard. I hope you know that I suffer from the desire of wanting to be liked a lot too. And I suffer from this sort of the spirit of timidity where, you know, I, I kind of say, uh, who, who am I? I know I'm, I'm a pastor, but sometimes I'm like, uh, who am I? In the beginning days of our church, probably like year four or five, um, I was like really the only full-time pastor here at Metro. And uh, I did about 95% of all the weddings. Everyone came to me, hey, could you do my wedding? Could you do my wedding? I'm like, sure, sure, okay, I'll do it. And, uh, and I'm so glad now because we have so many more pastors on staff and, and I, I probably do the least amount of weddings in this church and I'm totally fine with that. It's cool, right? Uh, but back in the day, I was doing almost all of them. And uh, this one guy who used to be a part of it, he's been a part of our church for a while, uh, he asked me if I could officiate his wedding. I said, uh, oh, yeah, of course, I, I could do that. And so um, I knew, though, that he was dating somebody who was an atheist, who was an atheist. I knew that as he was dating, he would come and share that stuff with me, but I never shared with him that you should be careful. Listen, I have done so much counseling. I have met different people. I have, I have family members who have decided who are Christians, who decided to marry somebody who's not. I have never met one healthy marriage where I've seen a somebody, somebody who is a Christian who values Jesus actually marry somebody who's not. It just doesn't work, I'm sorry. The, Jesus shares that truth, he makes it very clear. It just, it's not, you know why? Because you guys have the, such different value systems. And because you have such different value systems, it's gonna be hard for you to connect with your spouse. And you know the other reason why it's gonna be really hard for it to work? Because no matter how much passion you have, Ain't no way that passion gonna last for a long time because humans cannot be passionate all the time. Married people, you know that's true. You know there's no way you have that kind of passion for your spouse every single day. No way, in fact, it's even hard to even have passion for your spouse. The only way you're gonna be able to have passion for your spouse every single day, I'm telling you, this is the only way. You gotta tap into the passion that God has for your spouse. 
That's it. You guys say, God, would you help me to be passionate about my wife the way you are? Because I don't really have it. God, would you give me more passion for my husband the way you have passion for him? Because I don't have it. And you got to tap into that resource. And it doesn't work if the other person doesn't share in, in that belief in God. They're not going to be, they may be passionate for you for a little bit, but it's going to die. It's going to die. And so I knew all of this stuff, but he already bought the ring. Tens of thousands of dollars he spent on that ring. They put a deposit on the place where they're going to get married. I should have shared it with him. I should have sat down and told him the perspective and the truth, but I didn't. I married him, officiated the wedding. He left our church a few years later. But from what I know, from the years that he was a part of us, he was suffering and struggling with the reality of where his life, and that wasn't an abusive relationship or anything like that, but there was this emptiness that he had because his wife didn't share what he shared. His wife didn't share what he loves, who is Jesus. And it was very difficult. It was very difficult for him. Sometimes our desire to want to be liked Sometimes our desire to want to receive the approval of other people will prevent us from speaking the truth. I learned that point on. I said, I will never, ever, ever do that again. If I see a couple and I don't feel like they, one is a Christian, one, and they want me to, I will sit down and just say, this may not be the right thing. Even if they are Christians, I've done this now several times. I was like, are you sure you want to do this? I don't recommend it. I don't recommend that you get married. You guys are both really dysfunctional. You got to work on some things before you get married. Like, I, I'm, I'm so bold now to say things like this. I'm like, I've learned my lesson. Because understand this, if Paul didn't speak the truth to the centurion, they would have all died. And I can't live anymore in my life. I'm going to do the best I can. That if God is encouraging me to speak the truth and his love with humility to others, that I'm gonna do it whether I receive the approval or the liking of someone or not. We have to be willing to speak his truth. Who do you need to speak truth to today? I think you all know somebody in your life that you gotta sit down with and speak some truth in love with humility. Who do you need to do that to? You truly have made Jesus the center of your life when you actually love somebody that much that you're willing to even sacrifice maybe the relationship at some level because that truth needs to be heard. Now, whether they accept it or not, that's not up to you. That's up to God. All your job and my job is to share the truth in love, in support in whatever capacity, but to share that truth. Jesus becomes a center of our lives when we're willing to speak his truth to other people. I think it would even save lives. It would even save lives. Second, Jesus is the center of our lives when we embrace self-care. Jesus is the center of our lives when we embrace self-care. Look at verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there was 267 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they had wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. That's funny, right? Like, oh, we're full now. We're just going to throw everything else over into the water. Uh, Paul knew that in order for everyone to be safe and to get safely to land, that it was going to require them to expel a whole lot of energy. 
And they weren't going to do that unless they actually eat something and have some food in their stomach. They had to begin to take care of themselves. How many times have we entered into a crisis and because of the crisis that we're living in, the self-care thing goes out the window? Some of you are like these people. You don't eat. When you're, when you're in a crisis, you get so skinny, you look emaciated almost because you can't, you can't take care of yourself because you're so focused on the crisis in which you are experiencing. Some of you are like me, that when you go through a crisis, it's not like you don't eat. You eat everything. And you start to gain weight. You start to get bigger and stuff like that. And you, you know there might be a crisis going on, right? Where are you? Sometimes when we live in a crisis and we're living into a crisis, it's so hard to care for ourselves well. It really is. And understand that self-care is critical. Why? So that Jesus can be the center of your life. Not so that you can look good in front of a mirror. Not so that people can say you're good. Not so that you can, you can advance in your career. You can advance in even your relations with certain people. No, 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 no. Self-care is critical for one reason and one reason only. So that Jesus can be the center of your life. Amen. I take airplanes all the time. I fly exclusively United trying to get their miles, free, free tickets. That's my hope. Um, I watch those videos, and they're getting more entertaining now. But what do they teach you in those videos? They say, in the event of an emergency, if the oxygen mask falls down, what do they tell you to do first? Put it on yourself before you help your kids, right? That you got to put it on yourself first before you help anyone else on the plane. What are they saying? They realize, they've done study, that if you don't care for yourself first, guess what? You can't care for anyone else. And here's the thing, why does God want you to care for yourself so that he can be the center of it all, but so that you can begin to live out the great commandment, so that you can learn to care for other people, but you can't care for other people if you're not learning to care for yourself first. We have to grow in self-care, to love the Lord your God, which is the greatest commandment that Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to experience the bounty of God, even here on earth while you're alive, he says, live out the great commandment, love God, but love your neighbor as who? As yourself. You cannot love other people. You can't love your neighbor until you can begin to love yourself. So you got to take care of yourself. You got to ask yourself. You got to take care. You can't just treat yourself whichever way you want to. You don't have the power and authority anymore to treat yourself that way. Some of you think it's okay that as long as you treat others well and you don't treat yourself well, you think that's okay. It's wrong. Why? Because you were brought with a price. Amen. Look what, look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It's an indictment to Christians today. He says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Some of you are so concerned about making sure everyone else is so well cared for. You're great at that because you have sort of like that maternal instinct, right? Taking care of other people but you're terrible at taking care of yourself. Paul says you can't do that anymore. You were brought at a price. You don't own your bodies anymore. God does. And because of that, you gotta care for yourself. Paul was on this ship. He knew that all these people would die if they didn't take care of themselves, and he had to teach them how to do it. He says, eat now. 14 days you haven't eaten. You have to eat. So Metro, what in your life are you starving in your life right now? that's hurting you and the people around you? What lack of self-care do you have right now that you are sort of living into, unfortunately, that literally is killing you every day? Is it your lack of rest? 
Some of you struggle so much with this because we live here in this country and your desire for success is so great that you cannot stop working that every day is such a chore of you to work and you need to know that God created you to be his child and you cannot be his child unless you are willing to rest. Because here's the problem, when you don't rest, you think you're God. You think if you don't work, everything is gonna blow up and it's not gonna work out. You start to have this Messiah complex that you have to work so that you can save your company or save the job or whatever you're doing and you forget that God's in control of your life, that if you rest, guess what? The world is gonna still be there. God's gonna take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. But you don't know that because you're not caring for yourself. You lack that ability to rest. Turn to your neighbor left and right and say you are worthy of rest. Come on, say it. Yeah. That's not your neighbor saying that to you, that's God. That's God. All of you, you are so worthy of rest. You have to create a plan where you're gonna start resting. Do you have that plan? Do you have a plan where for one day, 24 hours, you're gonna observe a Sabbath where you're gonna turn everything off, even your phones, and you're just gonna rest. You're gonna do some things that you delight in that you can let God minister to you. God can only minister to you if you're willing to rest. He can't minister to you when you're not. You have to allow him to do that. And, and, and let your resting be centered on making Jesus the center of it all. Sometimes, man, you guys are sneaky. You say, hey, man, you know, I, I can't serve at church anymore because I got to rest. If that's because you want Jesus to be the center of your life, go for it. I agree. But if you're partying Saturday night and you just don't want to serve in the morning because you, you got to deal with the hangover or whatever, that's not making Jesus the center of your life. In fact, probably it should be the other way around. All right, don't party, rest, and let Jesus use you to impact people's lives here on a Sunday. Your, your resting has to be centered around Jesus and has to be really focused on making Jesus the center of your life. All right, some of you lack self-awareness. You're clueless as to why you are the way you are. Some of you are clueless as to why some people don't like you. You always think it's their issue. You're clueless. You gotta grow in that. What's your self-care model that's gonna help you to realize and see things so that you can begin to grow? Maybe some of you need to get counseling. Some of you might need to even ask some people that are close to you to say, hey, can you just speak some truth into my life? Where are some areas I need to work on and grow in? Grow in self-awareness, right? That idea of growing is huge, all right? Some of you really struggle with lack of physical health. And if that's a problem, it's always been a problem for you uh, and, and you need help, I want you to know that there's, you know, people can help you. I know some people that can really help you in this area. If you want some help, just you know, email me and I'll help you to get connected with some of these folks that really know how to get you in a place of physical health. Your body is a temple of God. How you treat your body is a reflection of how you treat God. Right? You were brought out of price. You can't just do whatever you want to do. You can't just eat whatever you want to eat because if you continue to do that, now that I'm getting older, like my son, he's 13 years old. He eats whatever he eats. That's no filter. I was just like him. But now that I'm getting older, I can't eat whatever I want anymore. It messes me up. It's high cholesterol. My father had high cholesterol, high blood pressure. So I have to be careful with all of that stuff. Right? You got to care for yourself physically. All right, don't, don't be in shock that if you're not working on yourself physically and all of a sudden you go to the doctor one day and he says you have some issue, you can't be shocked because of that. You gotta care for yourself. Your health matters, your physical health matters to God, so take care of yourself. Some of you need healing. Some of you have deep wounds that even counseling can't help you with. 
You need deliverance today. You need the Holy Spirit to touch you and deliver you from the power of darkness that surrounds your life. Some of you need that. But what is the self-care model you're going to incorporate into your life that's gonna help you to grow in your life? Your inability, my inability to improperly care for myself is often going to result in our incompetence of caring for other people. When we, when we cannot care for our lives well, unfortunate consequence of that is that we are gonna be incompetent in caring for other people. And so self-care is huge. If you don't care for yourself, Jesus can't be the center of your life. You gotta submit to that. So how can you begin to care for yourself? So a few months ago, I came up with this uh, self-care dashboard. I call it a spiritual assessment dashboard. I ask this every month to myself. And uh, and you can use this if you want, but I know what issues I struggle with. And so I I have a dashboard. I ask myself, how am I doing in these areas? And so these are the six areas that I ask every month. The first thing I ask myself is, do I feel like I'm going deeper with Jesus? Do I feel like I'm going deeper with Jesus? If the answer is yes, fantastic, keep doing what I'm doing. If the answer is no, I gotta change up some spiritual rhythms because I'm not doing something, right? That's the first. Second, what things in my life are currently driving me away from the presence of God? What things in my life are currently driving me away from the presence of God? I ask myself, what are those things? And guess what I do? I try to deal with that and no longer let that become a barrier so that I can encounter the presence of God to the best of my ability. All right? Then I have four meters that I ask, right? You know, like like a gas meter, full, empty, right? Like that. So the first question I ask is, how is my patience meter? Is it full? Or is it getting empty? Do I find myself growing impatient these days or do I find myself growing more impatience? Right? And I ask myself that question. The second question I ask myself is, how is my anger meter? <laughs> am I getting more angry these days or am I not getting more angry these days? Listen, you know anger is a secondary emotion. It's not primary. So when you're angry, you got to ask yourself, what's underneath that? Why am I angry? What's the reason? It's not just this issue. It's not just because an old lady's paying by check at Costco's. You're getting angry. There's something deeper there that you gotta ask yourself. Why are you getting so angry? It's the last time I got so upset. Poor old lady. She didn't mean no harm. She just paid by check at Costco's. I was getting so angry at her. Like, why would you even ask who do I make the check out to? She's like, who do I make the check out to? It's Costco's. Come on. You gotta really ask that question? I was in a rush, but I was getting angry, and you gotta ask it, what's underneath that? There's something else that's underneath that, all right? Anger meter, I have a lust meter. I ask myself, am I getting more lustful these days or not? All right, listen, I know I'm a pastor, but I struggle with lust just like you, so don't judge me. And I won't judge you, (laughs) And I won't judge you. But I ask myself, how is that going this month? Where is the meter this month in lust, all right? And the last one, which is the most important one, I always save it to the last. I said, how is my shame meter? How did I deal with failure this month? What lies am I beginning to believe that's causing my shame to grow? That's deep, isn't it? My, that's my self-care, that's a quick self-care model that I start to ask myself on a monthly basis that I do believe you and I have to come up with our own dashboard and ask ourselves, checking in, right? The resting thing, I don't have to put in there because I rest. I, I really have done a good job of that, growing in that, so it's not really in there because I, I do a good job with that. But the other stuff is what I struggle with. So whatever you struggle with, that should be your dashboard, your meter, all right? Self-care is such a key 
thing for you and I to invest in so that Jesus can be the center of our lives. The third thing, Jesus is the center of our lives when we rely on others, when we rely on others. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The boat stuck fast and wouldn't move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. If the people on the boat didn't rely on each other, they would have all died. And here's the thing, when we're in crisis, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to rely on one another, to rely on other people. But if you want to make Jesus the center of your life, you have to get to a place where you could begin to rely on other people. Really is. Why? Because when you do that, you live out, literally you live out the image in which God created you. And what's the image in which God created you? Him. Do you realize that God doesn't even rely on himself alone? So when you just rely on yourself, especially when you're going through crisis, you are living completely antithetical to how God created you in his image. Because who else does God depend upon? The Son and Holy Spirit, doesn't he? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God depends and relies on others. You and I should too as well. Jesus did the same thing. When he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve before he was arrested and eventually would be crucified on the cross, he brought Peter, James, and John. He said, hey, pray for me. My heart is so overwhelmed to the point of death. And so he says, pray. And then he goes a little distance and he decides to pray at the garden by himself. He comes back and what happens? They fail and they fall asleep. Right? He wakes them up, he goes, come on, pray for me. Pray for me. And then he goes back and prays again. Jesus is teaching you and I that we have to rely on other people, especially when we go through crisis. Why? Because the most powerful way in how we can encounter Jesus is always through the other person. When two or more are gathered in his name, he will truly be there and you and I have to rely upon other people in those moments of crisis. I know sometimes we've relied on some people when we were hurting and they failed us. I get that but you gotta try again, because Jesus did. He didn't be like, ah, forget them and go back and pray. He woke up and said, hey, come on, try. Try again, and they did fall asleep again. Just because people have failed you because you've tried to rely upon them, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't rely on them or rely on others anymore. And I get it because a lot of you, it can be a sense of pride you don't want to tell people that you need help because we, li- especially for guys, we live in a society where we're supposed to be strong, like warriors. Warriors don't need help. We just fight and conquer and destroy. That's kind of what our culture teaches us. And so we don't ever think about asking for help when we need it. We gotta learn to rely on other people. And for some of you, it's because it comes from a place of hurt. You've been so hurt because people, you've relied on some people and they've hurt you. Listen, you're not perfect and they're not perfect. Just understand, offer some grace, and keep going up and trying to make it happen. For me, when my meters start going on empty, I rely on my two soulmates, my closest friends, and I call them and I start to report to them what's going on with my meters. And what I love about them is just, they don't just say, hey, you better, you better do good. They say, what's underneath? Let's go, what's going on with you? And they just unpack it, unpack it, unpack it to help me. I, won't, I cannot be where I'm at today if I didn't rely on other people. And there's certainly none of you in this room could make it on your own. You might be able to make it on your own, but you're gonna be on your own for the rest of your life. And you certainly will never know the beauty and the joy that comes when Jesus becomes the center of your life. You shouldn't rely just on anyone. Be careful who you rely on. You should be able to rely on wise people, people who you know have integrity and character. 
Learn to rely on those people, especially those people who have committed and saying, I will always be here for you. So if you need anything, let me know. Those are the people you need to rely on. Proverbs eleven fourteen it says this, beautiful passage. Sunita shared this with me this week. For the lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Metro, you need to rely on others. If you want to make Jesus the center of your life, more important than even your life itself, you got to begin to rely on other people because you cannot survive and function unless you rely on people. It's the best way in how we grow. So um, I've been, uh, I've, uh, you guys know that I do this doctoral program now, and uh, it's on global leadership. And so it's, it's I mean, it's a great program. And uh, this first semester, uh, they did a, a, a full 360 evaluation of me and my leadership. And one of the things that they gave me advice on, they said, you should find an executive coach, Peter. And I said, well, that, that would be fine. I'll do that. I had, I, I, I had somebody in mind as soon as they said it. His name is Jim Bauer. And he comes here every month from Madison, Wisconsin, and he helps us. He's our consultant that's helping us to work with the government here in Englewood so that we can acquire Liberty School. And so we're working really hard at that. Jim's a genius. He's so great at kind of working through that. But Jim was a former CEO. Jim is also an executive coach for a lot of CEOs around the country. The guy's brilliant. He's done this stuff all the time. And I mean, I should have asked him in July, maybe August. You know, I waited. I didn't ask him. For, 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 uh, for that kind of mentorship. But I did in September and I said, hey Jim, would it be okay if you can be my executive coach? And he looked at me and he said, of course, I'd be more than happy to. Last week we sat down at Starbucks and for two hours he just started asking me some of the most powerful, wonderful questions and some a little disturbing. And uh, after the two hours he said to me, he said, hey, you are functioning at 50% capacity right now at Metro. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean by that? Are you telling me that I don't work hard enough? I was like, are you trying to say something bad about me? He's like, no, 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 He's like, in fact, you're doing too much, but you're not doing the right things. You're not focusing your energy on the things that really are mission critical for the future of the church. You're focusing on a lot of, lot of other stuff that's keeping you bogged down on things. And, and he said, one of the things that you need to really think about letting go of is that you're doing quite a bit of counseling. Not to say that counseling is bad, but you have staff who can do it, and they can probably even do it better than you. You need to be focusing on the bigger picture, mission-critical things that will continue to allow Metro to be healthy and grow numerically. And so I just stopped them right there. I said, well, hey, hey, hey. Um, I don't know if I want to focus too much on growth. I, I really stopped that about 10 years ago because I almost quit this church because I was so focused on growth. And he just has such a way of just kind of speaking deep into my heart. He says, oh, Really? I said, yeah. He said, well, so you haven't really focused on growth over the past 10 years. I said, I have not. He said, well, has the church grown in the last 10 years? I said, yeah, it has. He said, like, how much do you think? Maybe like, like four or five times the size than it was 10 years ago. And he said, you're using that as a cop-out. It's an excuse. God's giving you a gift to grow things and you're not willing to use it anymore. Why? Because you're afraid. He's like, here are some mission critical things you need to focus, only you can focus on in order for you to help this church be healthier. I'm telling you, man, it was so good. I was so thankful to get that advice and to kind of look at some things and I'm able to see the church better in a different way. And I'm just so cr- grateful. And, I, and you know, I've read every book on leadership, all those things. And sometimes you can think, ah, I don't need an executive coach. 
I got Jim Collins, I got these guys, you know, I got Warren Bennis, I got these guys. But you gotta get to a place in your life where you rely on us. I rely on people so much spiritually, but I also need to now, I need to realize I need to rely on some people vocationally. I had never knew I needed to rely on that as much. Because I just thought, as long as I'm good spiritually, I'll be fine as a leader. No, there are things that I don't know that I need somebody to help me and teach me with. It's, it's humbling, but it really is beautiful. Rely on other people. Get to that place. Jesus becomes the center of your life when you do it. And here's the last thing, and I think it's one of the hardest things to do. If Jesus becomes the center of our lives, it happens when we do good unto others. When you and I do good unto others. Look at verse 42. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were there to get on pl- the, the rest were there to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Uh, the soldiers were going to kill all the prisoners simply because if any prisoner escaped, the Roman government would punish them. It could even be a death sentence. And so they don't want to die. And so they said, hey, you know what? We're just going to kill all the prisoners. It was the right thing to do. But the centurion, the captain of the soldiers, he said no. Why? Because of the good that Paul did to them. Because of the good that Paul did to him and to everyone else on the ship. And as a result of the good that Paul did to them, not only his life, but everyone else's life was saved. You don't know, honestly, you don't know the good that you do to others. You, you cannot even fathom how much of an impact that has on other people around you. Now, here's the thing that's one of the greatest challenges. How do you do good to others when you're in crisis? It's so hard, right? How do you do good to others when you're in crisis? And can I maybe even go even deeper? How do you do good to others when they don't do good back to you? It's really difficult, isn't it? It's so much easier to just to be angry and get upset and not do good. That's our natural response. But if you want to make Jesus the center of your life, you and I both have to learn to do good. Even to those who don't do good back to us. It's not about that Metro Community Church. It's about your willingness to wanting to do good because it pleases our God. Look what it says in Hebrews 13, 16. Look what it says. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When you and I do good unto others, especially those who don't deserve it, it's a sacrifice for God. We give him a sacrifice, and he is so pleased with it. It's an act of worship. And so who in your life today do you need to do good to because you have not been very good to them? If anything, your actions towards them doesn't really reflect that Jesus is the center of your life. In fact, it kind of reflects that something else or someone else is the center of your life. Maybe you, maybe the devil, I don't know. But we need to learn to do good because you have no idea what that's going to do and the good that causes. You know, just before um, first service ended, I gave an announcement to the church in first service. I was gonna give an announcement today um, so many people, every year they get excited about our Thanksgiving meal. We have a, you guys know, we, every year on the last uh, Sunday of, uh, on the Thanksgiving Eve, or the Thanksgiving week of, of November, we always have an amazing Thanksgiving celebration. You guys know that, right? Who've been here? It's a highlight. It's our second highest attended service after Easter. Because you invite everyone to come and eat. Like you invite everyone. We have about five, six hundred pounds of turkey. 
right? I mean, it's elaborate. But this year, we've been struggling a bit financially as a church, just being very honest. And we have to be fiscally responsible. And it's a, it's a pretty big expense for our church to p- provide for all of that. And so I just said, guys, you know, because people have already been saying, hey, we can't wait for the Thanksgiving thing. And I don't want to deal with your wrath on that Thanksgiving Sunday. So I'm gonna t- I was going to tell you now, I was gonna just tell you, we're not going to have it this year. We have to save money. All right? So that's what I made that announcement. And uh, directly after the service, I was just getting some water, and, and somebody just stops me. And I've known him for a long time. And he's not, like, wealthy, so this is easy for him. He says, how much does it cost to do this? And I said, I told him. And he said, um, we're living day to day right now, but we're going to figure it out, but I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. And I said, are you sure you want to do that? I was like, you don't have to. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, it's one of the best events for me to come with my family. And we know how many people come. And, and there's so many people, newcomers that come. And maybe they can hear the gospel. Maybe something can happen. And maybe they'll give their lives to Christ. And he started saying all these things. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I said, thank you. He goes, don't tell anyone it was me. Just tell them that a turkey decided to buy turkey. <laughs> That's what he said for the church. And I want you to know that that's a beautiful thing because we don't know what kind of good that that's going to create in the future. Somebody this, on the 24th of November can come to this church for the first time because of your invitation. And they can give their lives to Jesus for the very first time. Can I just ask you, because you know, he did share with me he's going through some hard times. Could you just pray? You don't know who he is, but pray. God does. Just pray a blessing upon that man. That God will bless him, his wife, and his family for that sacrifice that they made. Because this is, this is a true sacrifice he's making, but he has that heart of, of generosity that he wants us to have that celebration so that we can continue to be a community here at Metro Community Church. And so it's just so encouraging to see that even in a moment of crisis, that somebody, like I, it's a perfect example, that he decides to do good, even in the midst of the crisis he's experiencing today in his own life. I think God wants you to do good today. He wants you to do good to others, even though you might be in a crisis, even though you might be struggling. Stop making it about you and think about who you can be good to, because if you do that, I think God is going to bless you in a deep, deep way, and particularly learn to do good to people who don't do good to you. You have to learn that. This week, this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and um, my mother was... uh, abused by my father physically. You guys know the story. My sisters and I were as well. And back in those days, you know, my mother didn't have an option to leave because she couldn't support us financially. So she had to stay, and it was hard. My father publicly beat her in front of his friends. And that's how, I mean, it's one thing getting beaten in private, to get beaten in public, and, and my father's friends were such cowards. They never stopped them. They pulled my mom aside. You know what advice they gave to my mom? Stop yelling at him and wait till your kids get older and they will protect you. How about my father's friends? Couldn't they beat him up? Couldn't they smack him around and say, if you do that again, we're going to kill you? Like, that's the advice they gave to her. She had to deal with this reality, right? And so for me, there was so much anger in my own heart because I grew up with a man like that in my, whole, in my entire life. All he did was hurt my mother, hurt my sisters and myself. He was a foe even in my own home. I was so, uh, fear was such a normal part of my life in my home. And you can only imagine what, f- what fear did to me when I left my home. I was just afraid all the time. And I, and I still remember in college when God started to convict me and say, you got to open your heart to this man. I just said, no way I'm going to do that. 
He should come to me and apologize to me. I, he should be the one taking the steps to reconcile with me and to my mom and everyone else. There's no way I'm going to do that with him. And, you know, he did, I, I decided to do it because my pastor told me to do it. And I, I invited him to campus and we started to have a little bit of a connection. It was so beautiful. First time I started learning a little bit about his life. And then later on in that year, when I thought things were coming together, my sister called me one day. We just op- she opened up to me. She shared with me that my, my father has sexually abused her as a child. And that was it. We were, I came home that weekend from school. I was going to kill that SOB. I said, I'm not going to let him live anymore. And so I got a knife, and I was ready to stab him while he was sleeping because he slept in the living room floor. He's sound asleep. And it was one of the most broken moments, moments of anger that I've had, and I just said, I, I don't, we don't, and none of us deserve what this guy did to us, especially my sister. I had no idea she was going to counseling for years at school because it was so hard for her. And she kept saying, how come you didn't know, Peter? Didn't you know how different I acted like after that happened? I'm like, I was a kid. I had no idea. And my greatest challenge was to do good unto this man who I call my dad. It was my greatest challenge of all. And I, I didn't know how I could do it. If it wasn't for God, there would be no way. And I can honestly say that the journey of trying to do good unto this man to the day he died about three years ago was something that is one of the greatest works I've ever been able to do in my entire life. That I was able to forgive him, love him. I was able to hear from his own mouth that he was proud of me, that he loved me, and that I know that he was broken and he was awful. Everything he did, there was no excuse for it. It was awful and it was horrible. But if I stood at a place where I kept being bitter towards him and didn't try to be good to him, I would have, I think, lived my life today with so much regrets because I would have lived with so many regrets before he died. But because he did pass away, I'm so grateful that I've done whatever I could. And I said, there's nothing more I could have done with my father. I really tried to love him as much as I could before he passed away. And you know, like, it kind of came first full circle today as I, I was reflecting. My wife shared this with me today because yesterday my son Christian, he's 13, he went away to a birthday party with a friend at Dave and Buster's. A bunch of kids came. A lot of money was being spent. You know, because these are kids. They're 13, 14 year olds. They want to have fun. And uh, the father said, hey, Christian, um, let, me go f- let me fill up your card. And my son's like, no, it's okay. It's okay, you don't have to. And he said, no, no, give me your card, I'll fill it up. And so he filled up Christian's card, and then Christian ended up sharing with some of his friends so that he wouldn't have to fill up everyone's card. And then he gets in the car, and he tells my wife, he says, um, mom, I don't want to have a big birthday party. And my, mom's, and, and my wife said, why? He said, because um, I realize how much money it's going to cost. And I know that dad... You know, I don't want dad to have to fill up cards for everyone because, you know, I know that it can be a lot of money. You know, he knows a little bit, you know, my daughter's in college, things are a bit tighter for us. And when my wife shared that with me last night, I was so touched by that, that my son has the ability to care for me and for my wife and care for our situation, and that he's already acting like an adult at 13. His birthday's a few months away, and he's like, I'm just going to have a small party. And so that kind of broke my heart to hear that. But you know, it also allowed me to rejoice because the good that I was able to do towards my father who really didn't deserve that good has allowed me to work on my own broken issues so that I can try to be the healthiest I can be to love my kids and my wife to the best of my abilities. I fall, I make mistakes all the time. And then I see the good in them. And it's such a beautiful thing to see 
that when Jesus becomes the center of your life, the good that we can be capable of that will not only impact our lives, but the people around us. And sometimes you'll be amazed at what some other people say about how, how loving and compassionate they can be. All because we decided to do good unto somebody who maybe doesn't deserve it. I pray today that Jesus will be the center of your life and that you would do good to even those who don't do good back to you. May he be the center of your life. Let's pray. Well, would you go to him? And would you commit yourselves to allowing Jesus to be the center of your life? Would you commit yourself to speaking his truth in love and in humility to people who need to hear that truth? Will you embrace self-care for yourselves? Will you learn to rely on other people? And will you learn to do good unto others, especially those who don't do good by you? I'm gonna give you a few moments to do that and I'm just gonna pray for us. Let the Spirit come and minister to you today. God, I pray that today you would help us to make Jesus the center of our lives. Lord, I know sometimes it's so uh, easy for us to just kind of live in our hurts and our pains and focus on ourselves when we're in this crisis. But God, when we can do good unto others, especially those who don't do good by us, um, the impact that that has, not just on our lives, but on other people's lives, is just really amazing. And then we get to experience a gift where we see somebody who can shock us in a way we never thought that they were capable of. I mean, I know my son's good, but I never thought he was capable at his age to just say, I'm going to have a small party because I don't want dad to spend a lot of money. What good could come to the good that we offer to others that has an impact on other generations? God, we can't live our lives unless you're the center of it. And I pray that every person in this room who authentically wants to get there, that you would make them the center, that you would be the center of their lives, that you would give them such a passion and discipline to do that, that they would speak truth, that they would embrace self-care, that they would learn to rely on others because they can never do anything by themselves, and God, that you would teach them to do good unto others, even those who've hurt them. And that as people see this, as they see how they behave, the way they saw Paul on that ship, God, that you would allow them to be leaders for the, for the people that surround them in their lives, to be agents of your love to them. And so God, I just pray that you'll be with us and help us, God, to, be the cent- to allow you to be the center of our lives. Bless this church, strengthen us, give us hope, even though we might be struggling with it today. And I pray that you would just bless our community. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There's some next steps that I would love for you to take if you could flip over your communication card. Uh, The first one is this. Peter, I'm going to commit myself to Jesus for the very first time. If you've never done that, please just check that off and say, Peter, you know what? I'm going to do that. 
And, and we'd love for you to go out to the next table, which is the first table on my left. Uh, we'd love for you to go to that table. We will have actually uh, the second table on my left. We'll have a, a new believers packet, kind of helps you to get started. And we can, we'd love to also journey with you in this new decision that you've made. It's an exciting decision where Jesus can be the center of your life. Second, uh, I'm going to speak truth in love to someone this week. There's probably somebody that you have to speak truth in love to. Would you think about doing that this week? All right. Uh, third, I will create a self-care plan this week and share it for accountability. All right. So create a plan this week about how you're going to care for yourself. And then would you maybe get together with someone, maybe in your small group, and just start asking and just say, hey, can you just keep me accountable? If you come up with a plan and you share it for accountability, you have every opportunity to actually live it out. But if you don't make the plan and you don't share it and you just kind of have some thoughts, it's never going to happen. All right, so be intentional this week. Uh, fourth, please sign me up for Connections Dinner on November 17th at 4 p.m. Uh, this is something that I have for a lot of newcomers or people who want to, want to learn a little bit more about Metro Community Church. It'll be on November 17th at my home at 4 p.m. Love to invite you to come over and uh, we'll eat together, but we'll learn a lot more about what Metro Community Church is really about. Last, um, I will sign up for the Singles and Newlywed Retreat on November 8th through the 10th. Uh, the singles ministry, as well as like the newlywed, some of the newlyweds who just recently got married, uh, they're gonna go away. It's like a highlight every year where they go and then they, uh, they experience a powerful time in God. You gotta be intentional about this if you wanna grow. Uh, my good buddy Daniel Hill is gonna be the guest speaker. You know Daniel has come and spoken here. He's an author, he's, he's so busy. Uh, he speaks all over the country, and I just kind of called him. I said, could you please bless our community? And so he made me make some promises, and I have to abide by it, but he's going to be coming out now, and he's going to spend some time. You guys are going to be in for a tremendous treat. I do want to encourage you to sign up for that. Check it off. We'll get you the registration link this week, or you can go out and sign up online right now. There's a table on the right-hand side. I think the second or third table on my right will have that.